Well, good morning here. We're continuing our uh, discussion on uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And um, moving along here, we've been now, um, we've covered um, a number of topics. Uh, if you're looking at your outline, I don't know if you guys have it, we've, mit- we've started then C, which is the main exposition and resolution, and completed um, C1, and, and, and we're going to move into C2 a bit and see where we get today. So that will begin with our invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So, the Ministry of Reconciliation, just kind of a recap here. Um, Paul talked about that the Colossians, remember, were once alienated and doing evil in verse 21, but then he contrasted that with now they are reconciled. Um, We talked about what being reconciled means in verse 122, that reconciliation now meant that the Colossians, and, and like we, are now holy and blameless. And that's all because of what Christ did in the flesh and body of Christ and then his death and resurrection. Then we talked a little bit about faith and what that was. A faith in an object, extranos, faith pointing to an object, and that object is Christ. Then we discussed about how faith is given to us, that it is a gift. It's a gift from God through the Holy Spirit. And then we discussed about the continuation of our faith, that uh, our faith has continued to be strengthened through the Word and sacrament. These are gifts. These are His means, um, which He gives to us to strengthen our faith in Christ. Then briefly, we looked a little bit at Paul's ministry and then the idea of uh, suffering and what that meant for Paul and what that meant for us. And recall that uh, we talked about Paul. He actually says that he rejoices in his suffering and really tells us that we should too. Um, and actually, you know, the Lord does expect us to rejoice in our sufferings, but then you say, but who could possibly do that? We can't, right? No one can. But we do have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit does help us. It's one of the fruits, the, the Holy Spirit. He comes and gives us joy in the midst of our suffering, even though it's, it's hard and we struggle with this, but we do rely on the Holy Spirit and God's Word to help us in our midst of the suffering that we encounter here as Christians on earth. And He does. The Holy Spirit does give us the strength and the means by how we can face the sufferings and tribulations that we face as Christians do. Um, I did want to cover one more thing here, though, just kind of as a recap, and I thank Pastor for for very helping me with this question, because this is a a tough verse. So if I can just delve back in it quickly, I don't want to spend too much time because Pastor helped. But let's look at one twenty four, and uh, Chris, uh, we were a couple questions on this, so I did a little bit more research. 
So we read in verse 124 here, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So that is kind of a difficult passage here. I looked at it, re-looked at it in the Greek, and and and, and looked at some other commentators on how they translate it. And I want to I want to read it kind of how you know from the Greek perspective that it would it would say, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings in your place, and in my flesh I complete the things." lacking of the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. So still maybe a little confusing, but Paul, what Paul's saying right off the bat is his suffering is not apart from the sufferings of Jesus, but Jesus' suffering was complete in the sense that Jesus' sufferings and his death is all that was needed for the atonement of the world. Jesus' sufferings and death are all that was needed to reconcile things, all things to him. Recall on the cross, even Jesus said, or at the last, it is finished. And that meant that his sufferings and death, that was the end. But the suffering then that Paul is talking about when he talks about lacking, what Paul's saying though here is that we Christians do continue to suffer. And really if you look at it in this sense, it's a more of a third article to the creed, talking about the church as opposed to the second article of the creed, which is about Christ and his suffering. So when Paul says this language, what he's saying is now, once Christ is gone, we still receive Christ's gifts, but those are distributed now to us through means. And that's the third article, the means of the church. So it's here, though, that when these, the distri- distribution of the forgiveness of sins throughout the world through the church, Paul, that's what Paul's saying is what's kind of lacking from Christ. Now it's the church and, and those that are um, distributing the means of grace who do continue to suffer. The Christian is going to feel um, that, you know, as a suffering, that they're mocked, hated, maybe locked up or, or killed. So here's the suffering. We continue to suffer for the name of Jesus that the Lord uses us to spread the fruits of his redemption throughout the world. So that's kind of what this verse is really talking to. It's not second article, but third article in the sense that that now that Christ's gifts are distributed through his church, and that's the ongoing suffering um, that we see today. So, And, of course, Pastor did clear that up as well. Just to recap at it there. Okay, so then moving on, we did start then on chapter 2 on the main exposition, um, C2, which now Paul is talking about what true knowledge is. And this is two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We covered verse 1 last week. And again, as I said last week, here is where Paul is really beginning his arguments against the, um, the heretics at Colossa. Uh, again, Paul talks about knowledge. And remember, as we discussed, knowledge is this main theme of these Gnostic heretics uh, and that knowledge comes from outside, uh, not from Jesus, from the, but from this spiritual knowledge and, and uh, this, this attempt to rise up out of the flesh and into the spiritual realm. But Paul then is saying, no, that true knowledge really comes 
in faith in Jesus Christ. So here in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is really stressing the significance of the ministry of proclaiming Christ. And this um, will be more developed in this chapter. So verses 2, 1 through 5. Let's look at it here. I'll read it and then we'll kind of go through them. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all hidden are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Okay, so we talked about verse 2, Paul not being face to face. Recall he's in prison, but he is writing out to them. Um, Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knitted together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So, contrary to the teaching of the Colossian heretics who taught that some secret knowledge or initiation rituals only revealed to them this true salvation. No, Paul notes here that Christ himself is what? Is God's mystery and that hidden in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge needed for salvation. We talked about wisdom and knowledge earlier, but then again, Paul is stressing that it is in Christ. And now recall that that, that Paul keeps stressing this about Christ because it's believed that these heretics just denied uh, the deity of Christ. They denied that Christ was the Son of God. And they died, denied that Christ gave any salvation um, for the world. So that's why Paul continues to point everything to Christ here. In verse 3, Paul talks about in whom are hidden the treasures. Okay, that's in Christ, hidden. What Paul is doing here is he's challenging these false teachers who claim, again, special insight into the mysteries of God outside of Christ. But again, Paul is pointing out that all we need to know about God is really all ultimately revealed in Christ, in his incarnation, in his works, and then his death and resurrection on the cross. So Paul here wants to encourage the hearts of these believers and bind them together in love in this truth, this truth of it's only in Christ. Now, when Paul talks about hearts here, this isn't just the organ of of the heart. When you look at the Greek, this uh, really refers to the entirety of one's being. One, it's both an emotional and spiritual. One's heart refers to the way one really is as opposed to the way he may appear to be. So in their hearts then, it's, it's this... Everything is based on our knowledge. Wisdom is based on Christ and Christ alone. Okay. Moving on then to verse uh, 4 here. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's uh, so what he is writing here. His purpose is 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 that uh, he wants to address this tempting of plausible arguments. Now, what is that? These are possibly, I think, it's the false teachers there in Colossa, who probably sincerely believed in their own false teaching and, and were good orators and good good at making arguments. But Paul is saying, um, we've got to we've got to be careful for these plausible arguments. They're pl- they're, they're arguments that we cannot uh, we cannot allow these arguments to delude their faith in Christ Jesus. Um, so when he says, I say that in order that no one, so Paul, what Paul is doing here right off the bat is Paul leaves no room for error because it is this persuasive deception that will lead people away from Christ. And we see that, we've seen that in the church forever, right? That uh, people can attempt to be and be great orators and good speakers and good arguments and can make plausible arguments but again, the plausible arguments are not coming from Scripture, but they're coming from these arguments that are made by man. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying right off the bat, and we need to address this so, so no one is being deluded with these plausible arguments. And basically, it's about Christ, and as we're going to see soon too, it's about other ways that these heretics we're trying to tell people that they have to live these certain lives along these cer- certain rules and regulation. And that's the only way to obtain sure and certain salvation. So, any questions up until this point? Okay. So, we'll move on uh, to verse 2 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Okay, for though I am absent in body, you know, as I talked about a couple times now, Paul, remember, was uh, jailed, um, we think, at Rome in this time. So I think, you know, if Paul could visit Colossus, it seems certain he probably could address these people one-on-one and uh, attack this heresy that's going on and clean it up. But he can't because he's in prison. So he's writing this letter. But he says, although I am absent in my flesh, he is with them in spirit. What does this mean? Uh, in spirit means is that really the Colossians have all of Paul's help right here now in this letter. And with the help of the letter, the Colossians have the help, which hopefully will prevent any further spread of this heresy. So that's what Paul means by that. Um, Then Paul also says, yet I am with you in spirit. Then he says, he's also, I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So what Paul is still noting here is that that the church of Colossae has hope. Um, They have conducted themselves with apparently orderliness in their dealings. Uh, in this congregation, how they're addressing uh, the harassing that's going on there. And Paul, I think, is admitting right off the bat uh, that some in the congregation, maybe not most, are, are remaining steadfast in correct 
confession and their faith in Jesus. And even in the face of the heresy facing the congregation, clearly Paul is saying that there's people there within this congregation that have remained in the true faith. And he also backs up by when Paul says, and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So, clearly, people still had a firm faith in Christ. And as you recall, at the beginning, I talked about who the pastor that was at this congregation was a man named Ephraphras. And then it was Ephraphras that's been dealing with this problem and went to Paul in prison, while he's in prison, to say, hey, I need some help. But here I think Paul is giving a shout out to Ephraphras, saying, look, Ephraphras was there. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So I think it's a shout out to Ephraphras. Good job, Ephraphras. He was still maintaining um, some tr- the, the true teaching and people were still listening to him and had people um, that remained um, when in good order and the firmness of the faith. So, but if the, then if the Colossians stand so well, why is Paul then writing this letter and still coming to their support, right? That's the question. Well, I think that this Paul realized that this could spread. And I think we can read from this that Paul realized that these heretics, their false teachings, were very persistent and that this was going to remain no matter what. And again, I don't think that's a dig to Ephraphras, but Paul is smelling out really the seriousness of what's going on here. So this is causing concern for Paul for the Colossians and that why he's writing this letter uh, spelling out really Christ and what Christ is. So what Paul's doing then is looking ahead. Um, Paul clearly, I guess, is not the one to wait for the total damage to be done and this congregation to completely fall apart. He's getting in advance of it. So I guess you can, we can see this as Paul is fortifying in advance, right? But I think this is what we're given to do here, right? At all times in our preaching, in our church bodies is we, we are fortifying in advance that um, this is why in the Missouri Synod Church in this church here that we're so focused upon our Lord's word and not any other man-made uh, revelations or interpretations but we focus strictly on our word which then then uh, our word is our Lord's doctrine and we're adamant to re- re- hold fast to our Lord's doctrine And, of course, our Lord's doctrine, then, is correctly uh, summarized in in our Lutheran confessions in the Book of Concord. And this is why we as a church body um, and our seminaries are so insistent on that men in our churches learn the small catechism, large catechism, and the doctrines, our Lord's doctrines, that are contained within our our Book of Concord. It's because we fortify in advance Um, anything that can creep into the church. And I think when the church doesn't rely on this and our Lord's doctrine, we see what happens, and that's what's happening in Colossae. And this is why Paul is so adamant um, that he needs to step in and help. Okay. So in conclusion here to this first part, the true knowledge that Paul is addressing, again, is true knowledge solely and in Christ and Christ's incarnation his works and his death and resurrection. 
So what Paul is saying then is is showing that Christ, the Christ-centered gospel, um, which he ministers, brings great and abundant blessings to his readers. And it does to us today. In contrast, the heresy that is enticing these folks in Colossae is a deception that we heard is cloaked by persuasive speech, but it's only that. It's not based in our Lord's doctrine, not based on the Christ-centered gospel, which as our churches are centered on today. Um, and then Paul then ultimately declares that all, all the Colossians, um, what they need for their spiritual well-being is to be found in Christ in his word. And again, the heretics denied Christ as God and um, that's why Paul's attacking that. So that's the true knowledge that Paul's talking about in this section. True knowledge comes from Christ in his word. Okay. Questions on that? It's pretty straightforward. I, again, I think that nobody uh, disagreeing here um, with this. Okay, the next uh, section here. So we talked about true knowledge and where that comes from. Now Paul's going to get into more of an, an analysis of the fullness of Christ. And that's this in, this, in, in our outline at C3, fullness of Christ. It's chapter 2. Verses 6 through 15. And I think I'm going to go ahead and read that. I know it's a lot, but I I like to just read it so we kind of have the whole thing in context. And we'll come back through it, if that's all right with you guys. So we can read along together uh, 2, 6 through 15. And if you notice in our Bible here, um, the editors have put in bold there, Alive in Christ, which in the outline the fullness of Christ. But the the same thing. Okay. So, 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside Nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is packed with just the center of, our, of everything we base um, our, our doctrine on and our faith in Christ and the salvation that we get. Okay, 
So let's kind of go by this uh, a little bit line by line here because there's a lot of good stuff to unpack. Paul's just such a master with his words here. So in verse 2-6 then, Therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So as you received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so Christians are to live in Christ as they have received him. Received as Christ the Lord really means what we receive Christ the Lord, not by our decision, not that we accepted him, not that we came to the knowledge on our own that he's Christ alone. No, we receive Christ the Lord through faith as a gift. And where we receive that, it's not some random or un, you know, unprovable time when we decided, but it's, it's one simple event that we can always point back to. And that is in our baptism. That's where we received Jesus Christ as Lord. Nothing that we did. It's a little baby normally. It's with the water and the word. That's where you received Christ as the Lord. That's where he put his name upon you. That's uh, nothing, nothing that you did all outside of you, but something that you can point to as a concrete thing that you can see and hear and a specific date and time, if you still have the record, uh, but knowing that that's when you received Christ Jesus as the Lord. So in baptism then, which we've spoke about over and over, the individual receives Christ, Christ number one, but also, it's, of course, we receive all the benefits of Christ's saving work. Again, nothing that we do but solely as a gift. And this was all accomplished at one time, which was our Lord's death and resurrection. Of course, that in our baptism, we were also part. We were also part of Christ's death and his resurrection. So that's what Paul's saying here, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now you can see how that can be misinterpreted by a lot of people, right? But really, when you look at Paul in, in, in the overall analysis of all his writing, it's clear. Um, and I don't think anybody disagrees that receiving is, 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 is a gift language. And it was our receipt was in our baptism. And then maintained um, in, the word, in, in, in the word, in the gospel today, and also in the Lord's Supper, in his body and blood, where we continue to receive Jesus Christ, the Lord. Okay, then there's two parts of this, right? So we receive, this is all gift language. But then and because of this, Paul says, we walk in him. Now it is important to note then that this, this at the beginning, as you received Christ the Lord, this is talking about when we were saved. This is our justification. Now, what comes after justification? It's when we walk with him, this is what Paul uses that talks about our sanctified life. Again, sanctification is completely different from justification, as you all know. Sanctification, then. What is this? Sanctification is the lifelong work of the Holy Spirit. And when, I want to I point out something. When we talk about Holy Spirit, uh, we sometimes tend to think that it's some ghost or something that comes and, and does all these individual 
personal things, but that's not how we view the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to us in the Word and the sacraments, but the Holy Spirit, remember this, a professor at the seminary, Dr. Masaki, really stresses this, and this is it's, it's an incredible thing. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, there is always something with the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit always is doing is bringing Christ. So Christ is always with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to us in means. The Holy Spirit comes to us through His Word and His sacrament. And when He comes, He does not come alone. What He is doing is bringing Christ, continuing to be bring Christ to us and all the benefits that we receive from Christ's death and resurrection. So, this is what the lifelong work of the Holy Spirit is, continuing to bring Christ Christ to us. And I think this is very interesting. When we look at the word sanctification, it's a Latin word that comes from two separate words that we brought in into the English. Sanctus which you guys have heard before. Sanctus in Latin means holy. And then the other part of that, sanctus, we've got holy, then we we say sanctification. That actually comes from a Latin word, facere, which means to make. So actually what sanctification means is, when you put these two words together, it's to make holy. And that's where we get sanctification was. And that's what's happening in our sanctification life. We're justified and at that point. We turn to our sanctified life. And that's where we are holy. And it's to make holy. It's a continual daily process that Christ makes us holy. Again, based on the gifts that he gives us. Our, our daily look at our baptism where we're daily drowned the old Adam and the new Adam arises. It's the continual receipt of the Lord's Supper where Christ gives us his body and blood on our lips which continues to make us holy. And then the word, the word that we study and the proclaimed word of the gospel. Um, So in sanctification, then the Holy Spirit does when he brings Christ, creates a new spiritual life in the person. And again, sanctification begins immediately at our justification. And then it's the Holy Spirit then bringing us Christ that is making a change change in us um, in in the same way that it was brought faith to us. It's nothing we did. It's the gospel. And that's what happens our change. It's not what we do on our own because we know that we're sinful and we still have the old Adam. But the Holy Spirit then is making is changing us, and then it's that that where our good works from come from, right? Without the Holy Spirit, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you have faith, even though you think you're go- doing good works, they're not good works, not good works. The good works that we do are also gifts, as justification is, and these good works are flow to us from the Holy Spirit, bringing us Christ, and that's why we do our good works. So, in, it is in the sanctified life, then, these are the fruits of our faith in our, in our lives. And he continues to nurture us in his word and sacraments. 
want one quick other look at this. Paul, Paul talks about this a lot, all of his epistles, okay? And this walk and this sanctified life. Because Paul's very careful that he doesn't want us to mix the two, okay? No, Paul's very strong in the doctrine of justification, but then gives us a lot of advice on what our sanctified life is. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, Uh, excuse me. Um, Paul does proclaim that those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ are God's workmanship. And that uh, we are created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him. So it's again, God prepared beforehand. Walking in Christ is a daily connection to our Lord and his word and sacrament which produces in us the fruit of faith, a life of good works. But we know this is that God is structured. It's a gift. Is God the workman to take care of his creation? How does he do that? He does that through vocations. And I'm going to always go back to vocation. I know I've said it a lot, but it's vocation, vocation, vocation. That's the gift that God gives us to act in his place as masks of God where we continue to uphold God's creation. Okay, And that's everything we do have, I've talked about. We've all got various vocations. Um, as Luther said, the, one of the best vocations is the mother changing the baby's dirty diaper. Um, all this stuff, this is stuff that God's given us and this is where we live our sanctified life. This is where we do our true good works in our vocations. Not some other made-up things which we're going to address. All this other stuff that the Gnostics were teaching, that we have to have strict dietary laws, this, we've got to do this, we've got to follow these 600 regulations as outlined in the Old Testament. Uh, come up with all these things? No. It's simply we do our good works in our daily lives, in our vocations. And that's what Paul's talking about here when we walk with him. Any questions or follow-up on that? Okay. So we saw uh, justification and sanctification there in verse 6. Now we'll go on to verse 7 here. Paul says, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we receive Jesus Christ, uh, as Paul said in verse 6. And, and this, then, is how we're rooted and built up in him. And these are both metaphors. One is a form of nature, which is rooted up. And the other one, then, is kind of a form of construction, built up. So we can see nature and and, and something that man... And, and these are just metaphors, but what they're both pointing to is something that is firm and enduring, okay? Our faith in firm and enduring Christ. So then it is, you're built up in Him, who's Him, of course, that is Christ. Being in Christ is a, means having saving faith in Him. And this is our mature relationship with Christ. So what Paul's saying then is having faith in Christ is firm and enduring. And this is our sanctified life. It's firm and enduring because it continues to be built up in His Word and His sacrament. 
and his promises that are given to us in, in these gifts. So it's important then to see the work of being rooted and built up is not the man or based on what we do, but it is the work that is from God himself through Jesus. He roots us into Christ as we are, as we are drawn by the Spirit deeper into God's Word and the sacrament. And these same gifts, our Lord builds us up in our faith as well. Um, so these images of this rooted and built up are ones of strength and stability so that as Christians we may not be toppled over, I guess, so to speak, by the storms of false teachings or trials that may come our way in this sinful world. Thus, we become rooted and built up in Jesus as we regularly engage what this means, and that is his words and his sacraments. So it's great picture language that Paul is using here in this. Another, another thing that's very important here is Paul said then, establishing faith, just so we're rooted and built up and establishing faith, just as you were taught. And then as a result of that, we're taught what we're taught. We're taught faith and all the gifts that Christ gives us. What do we do as Christians then? It's abounding in thanksgiving. And that's what Paul says in 2.7. As a result of the gifts that God gives us, our salvation, the gift of it knowing we have eternal life, what do we do? We abound in thanksgiving. So, um, of course, we believers we're, we receive the blessings of being united with Christ and in in in, with Christ in His death and resurrection through our baptism, and then we're nurtured with the Word and the sacrament, and then because of this we give thanks, and we give thanks in many ways. But one way I want to look at it, what I think one of the most important places that we do give thanks is in worship. This is what worship is for us. We've got to be careful about this. Worship is thanksgiving. But, first of all, worship, the reason that we have worship, and is it's all about the, the gifts that our Lord gives us. The gifts that the Lord is providing to the congregation. That's the main thing about worship. In response to these gifts, then, the congregation offer their thanks and praise. So let's look at it this way. In worship, there's two parts to it. The main part is obviously the gifts that our Lord gives us. And this is why we call it service. This is why we, we've, we've, we call, um, uh, we've labeled this the LSB. It's the Lutheran Service Book. It's, it's all about service. It's about all God serving us. So that's the main part of worship. So God, of course, through Christ, is the active participant in worship. It's everything. But then in response, we then, in response to that, we're the passive participants. And it's because of the gifts that God give us, then we turn around and we uh, give praise and thanks back to him. And it's kind of like breathing. We inhale and exhale. Inhale is active Excel is kind of a passive, but that's what worship is. God has given us all the gifts, and then in response, it's an exile where we think and praise Him. So then, if we look at this worship, them, and if I could, if I had a 
whiteboard up here, I'd write it, but think of this diagram. So we've got God and us, and then worship is, it's a dark line that you draw coming down with an arrow to us. That's the main part of worship. And then in response, there's I would write a little dotted line going back up, and it's our responsive prayer and thanksgiving. And that's why the German... The German actually word for our worship is Gottesdienst, and what that means is God's service. That's what the worship is. And then that's why we label this Lutheran service. But I do want to add one more thing because this is the most lovely thing. I love to read this. The introduction to the Lutheran service book talking about this. So if you guys will bear with me for a moment. And if you're ever interested, it's like, Right at the beginning, if you guys have these, what is it, one, five, five or so pages in. And they, the, the committee that wrote the hymnal a few years ago came up with this, and it's, it's actually very good. So if you have time, I want to read it. But I'm going to go ahead and read it, because it's so great. So, our Lord is the Lord who serves. Jesus Christ came into the flesh not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, he offered himself as the spotless sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. Through his perfect life and death, he accomplished forgiveness and salvation for all before the Father in heaven. By his empty tomb, he ascended into heaven. He declared his victory over sin and death to all the world, Seated now at the Father's right hand, he graciously serves his church with the gifts of salvation. On the last day, he will come again to gather his elect from every nation to celebrate celebrate the feast that will have no end. Our Lord serves us today through his holy word and sacraments. Through these means, he comes among us to to deliver his forgiveness and salvation freeing us from our sins and strengthening us for service to one another and to the world. Vocation. At holy baptism, he puts his name upon us, pours his Holy Spirit into our hearts, and rescues us from sin, death, and the devil. Through holy absolution, he pronounces his forgiveness again and again. With his holy word, written in scripture and preached into our ears, He daily proclaims his abiding love for us through all the joys and sorrows of life in this world. In his holy supper, he gives us his own body and blood to eat and drink as a priceless gift to nourish and strengthen us in both body and soul. Here's the important part. I'm almost done. The Lord's service calls forth our service in sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to him and in loving service to one another. Having been called, gathered, enlightened, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, catechism language, we receive his gifts with thankfulness, with thankfulness and praise. With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we joyfully confess all that God has done for us, declaring the praises of him who called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Our song joins with the song of every saint from every age, the new song of Christ's holy people declaring, 
worthy as a lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Isn't that fantastic? This is what service is. And that's what Paul then is saying here, I think, in this abounding in thanksgiving. And this is what we do. It's all in response to the gifts our Lord's given us. Yes, we got a question back there. Is there a mic somewhere? This has been troubling to me lately because we have such a rich liturgical tradition. And for some reason, and I don't know what it is, more and more Lutheran pastors are just tossing it aside. Maybe they'll sing the hymns, but they'll amend the liturgy. Maybe they won't sing the hymns, but they amend the liturgy. And with four settings that are equally wonderful. You know, as a lifelong Lutheran, it's sad for me to see that. Because that means generations following, how are they going to be nurtured if they're not nurtured through the Word of God? That's exactly right. And then it's easier to change. Things creep in. So I don't know what to do about it. Well, can I give you a little bit of positive news on this? Yeah, I'd like to hear it. (laughs) Please. Um, Of course, you know that I'm uh, I'm at uh, Fort Wayne Seminary. And Fort Wayne is very liturgical. And out of all my brothers there, all 45, uh, with multiple discussions with everyone, and with prior classes and now with the few classes that comes in, the majority, I mean the overwhelming majority, 99.99% of the men are liturgical and cherish in our liturgical heritage. So praise be to God for that. Now, the other seminary, and again, I'm speaking with all a brotherly love, St. Louis, we can rejoice in a new president that's been there now for a few years. And uh, we, can, we can thank him, um, from what I understand, has is, um, stopped all the contemporary worship services at St. Louis's seminary. So now, the good news is, is we've got both of our seminaries in the Synod that are not doing contemporary worship and are doing all liturgical worship so praise be to God to that. And But you are right. We've seen this creep in. But we can pray that now with the, th- the changes that are being made to, to our institution for the better, um, maybe we'll see that change in the future with a, a lot of these new yeah, as, coming. As you all go out, leadership is going to be important to say to the congregation, this is important. Right. Just a throwaway. Right, it's not a throwaway. No, it's not. I feel good about that. And that's very yeah, very much so uh, stressed upon us at the seminary. And that's why, uh, you know, one of the best parts of seminary, if I can digress for a minute, and um, is it, it, at Fort Wayne, you know, we do go to classes and everything. But every day, so most guys, we have class at, from 8, let's see, 8 to 9. And then at nine, 9.30 approximately, we have chapel every day in Kramer Chapel, Monday through Friday. And it's they're wonderful services. We have a divine service on Wednesday. We have Lord's Supper. But we follow a strict liturgical on all, all of the... And actually, there's a morning and an evening one. There's all these. But, you know, the main one is the guys are on campus. We all go and, and have a liturgical service every day of the week. And that has just been wonderful for me. Every day to get to go in there 
be a part of this great liturgy, be a part of the great uh, gospel preaching that our pastors and, and those that come in, the professors do. And it's wonderful. And I think that's very important, and that's ingraining into these seminarians. They get three years of it. I get a fourth year because I get it here. Um, also, of this liturgical, you know, true God-esteemed worship, where we see God serving us at all times. And that's the main point, God giving us gifts. And then, as I talked about here, is that we do respond and praise and thanksgiving, um, as Paul talks about here um, in verse 7. So, great, it's great. So. We can we can we can thank God for this and for the seminaries and and, and for St. Louis's decision too, um, which is great. So keep praying about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean that our response is passive? Mm. Yeah, because it's 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 not that's not kind of the, that's not the beginning of it, right? So a lot, so that's good good point to bring up. So a lot of people. Um, they view worship kind of as a worship of the law, which is worship is all about what? What we do. And that's the main theme. Most people think that worship, you go, it's everything about what we're doing to God, right? We're doing to God. And that's, that's worship of the law, and that's wrong. God doesn't need our worship in that way. What, why, that's why I say that would be then an active participation of worship. That the goal, the main thing is, is that you go and you're doing everything only to God. Has nothing about Him. It's everything to God. Again, doesn't God doesn't need that? But it's the worship then of the gospel, which the Lutheran Church looks at. It's this service, God instincts. It's the first, the main active part of it is not us. It's all about the gifts that God is giving us in the worship service. And then the passive participation is, since that's the foremost, it's our just response back to because of the gifts, we are per, uh, passively participating in thanking him for the main thing of giving us all these gifts in his divine service. So can you kind of see the difference? I mean, it's subtle, but again, an active participation would mean that the main what you think that in the main purpose of the service is we're just going to all come in and it's all about what we're doing for God, right? God doesn't need us. God doesn't, that's not what he wants. So that's an act of, as opposed to how we passively participate with God being the main active participant, giving us all the gifts that he gives us in the worship service. Sense? But in that beautiful this introduction to the LSB, I think I think they did a really good job, and it does gives us a great understanding then about how we today, as Paul writes here in verse seven, that because of Christ and because we're rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, as we were taught, we're taught by the Word. Then in that we respond in with abounding in thanksgiving. Okay. So, let's move on then to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, remember that Paul's writing this to the Colossians, right? But it kind of rings true today, doesn't it? I mean, so Paul says, see to it. What does he mean here in the Greek? It's really this take heed, watch out. 
So there are, of course, the deceivers here in the church at Colossae, and of course, this is why Paul is writing it. Paul is telling the Colossians to see to it that there should be not a single successful deceiver. And again, that goes back to what I said. That's what we do too. That's why we're so in in the Word and studying the Word um, is that we take heed, we watch out, that we remain in the Word. And we're not going to be deceived by who? Paul goes on to say, here the philosophy and empty deceit, which are according to human tradition. And we know that that's clearly a negative statement. Philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition. And what do we know that human tradition is? Human tradition, then, is sin. So what Paul's getting at there is the notions really that man has invented, right? Philosophy and emptiness, deceit, as opposed to what is true wisdom and knowledge, which which we've been discussing up to this point a number of times. True wisdom and call knowledge comes from our Lord's word and our Lord, and then which is in our, our Lord's doctrine, and then in, in our doctrine. Elemental spirits of the world, then that's another thing. So he, he said philosophy and empty deceit, human tradition. He goes on to add an additional elements of the world. And elements of the world uh, can be seen as false teachings that are constructed from the basic elements of the falling universe, from man, from human tradition. And this really is a reference to all kind of non-Christian religions, which back then was either Jewish or pagan. But again, this does ring true today, right? We see it in lots of places. And I came up with a little list. Where do we see this philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, elements of the world? They're all around us. Latter-day Saints, Islam, philosophy of the New Age, Materialism, agnosticism, everything. It's, they offer nothing in view of the world's need of salvation. Philosophy, empty deceit, elemental spirits of the world, all according to human tradition, uh, tradition is actually a stumbling block to the gospel because it's all focused on the work that man does um, towards salvation. And that's what's going on in, in, here at Colossae and then what, what we see in these today. And I think we have a question. Chris, yeah? Mm-hmm. Wondering, um, this, um, where this is, um, where this congregation is, is it kind of near the Asia Minor area that uh, the early Greek philosophers were, were active in? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. So and, it makes me think maybe, uh, do you think the elemental spirits might be referring to people like, Thales, for example, who, who, who uh, surmised that everything was made of water. And that was the basis of all. Yeah, I think, I absolutely think that's a plausible, yeah, argument for sure, sure. Gnosticism, yeah, all that, you're exactly right, yeah. So, Paul then is pointing out these, these philosophies, empty deceit, everything that was a human tradition, Everything then really is coming down to uh, focused on the work of man um, towards salvation. 
Um, we've got a couple more minutes here. Let's try to get, if, if there's not any more questions, let's get through one, maybe one or two more, and then we'll call it a day. So verse 9. And now we're going to repeat something that we've already talked about. So in 9 then, For in him the whole fullness of deity, deity dwells bodily. And then 10, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And now Paul expands here on the concepts we talked about in verse 1, 18 through 19. Um, 1, 18 through 19. Let me read that again. Remember when Paul wrote, he's talking about the preeminence of Christ, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that's what Paul's re. Uh, referring to back to this concept of the body. Now, Paul does this, use this word, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Greek word is uh, pleroma. So, again, recall, a part of the Colossian heresy was the general belief that the material world was inherently evil. And... So the hope of this heresy then was that the true followers of God would you know, one day be able to escape this fleshly existence and be re- reunited with the Spirit. And it was here in the spiritual, getting out of the flesh into the spiritual. This then was the fullness of the deity that they thought. Okay, So of course then against this concept of what the fullness of the deity is, Paul writes that the fullness of Christ only, or excuse me, the fullness of the deity only dwells in Christ. And then Paul adds that in Christ, the divine fullness dwells bodily. Again, this is against the Gnosticism. The term points to the incarnate Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as the one in whom God's full deity dwells. Now, this language here constitutes really one of the strongest possible attestations of the divine nature of Jesus. Thereby, it also constitutes a rejection of the heretic's principle that physical matter is evil. So, again, Paul said this over and over, but Paul stresses that Christ, the divine fullness, dwells in Christ bodily. And again, that's how we get our two natures of Christ. Christ is 100% man and 100% deity. So with that, I think we've covered a lot. There's still a lot more cool, cool topics that we can cover in this section, which we'll have to do next week. So thank you all for listening, and thanks for your great questions. And thanks for bearing with me on the worship thing, because I think that's just that's awesome. So, The Lord be with you.